then after it starts melting, I put more orange juice and it's delicious. It's Ooh, I like it. I like it. Okay, are you ready for this? Okay. Are you going to record or just? I'm going to record so that it transcribes the interview for me. But here. So this is for my human rights and justice class. And so to start off with, can you tell me a bit about who you are? Okay, I am your grandfather. Okay. And I'm 81, mm -hmm. but my attitude is 21. <laughs> <laughs> so. Can you tell me a bit about like where you grew up and where you live now? Yeah. So I grew up in Cuba. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had a, a fantastic uh, environment growing up. And uh, I had one brother and 11 cousins. And uh, uh, my life, I would say, wouldn't be the same without counting with the farm mm -hmm. of uh, our grandfather. And we were very close, all the cousins. Mm -hmm. So I have wonderful memories. And then I went to a Jesuit high school in Kiwa, in Havana, uh, called Belen mm -hmm. High School, like Bethlehem. Mm -hmm. And uh, I studied there uh, from pre-first grade to 12th year of, I mean, senior year high school, which was mm -hmm five years of high school mm -hmm. and uh, seven of grade uh, school. So I, I was there 12 years wow. with the Jesuits and that had a big impact mm. in my life, especially mm. from the standpoint of social justice. Mm -hmm. So once we came to the United States, I had to adapt to the new way of life. Uh, I already had studied three years uh, of economics at the Catholic University of Villanova, mm -hmm. the same as a priest in Philadelphia, mm -hmm. Augustinians. Mm -hmm. And then once I came to the United States in Atlanta, mm -hmm. uh, I finished my college education and graduated in 1965. Mm -hmm. I left Cuba in 1960. And our first uh, daughter Ellie was born in Atlanta mm -hmm. and the pictures of my graduation from mm -hmm. college uh, I had the type of gown holding baby Ellie Aww, she was yeah. three months old oh wow so I was fortunate to marry my sweetheart mm -hmm. Eloisa we mm -hmm. called her Ellie mm -hmm. and I met her and her family when she was 12. wow but we started dating when she was 16. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I left Cuba in 1960, and her and her family of 14 brothers and sisters left after an invasion mm -hmm. in 61. Uh, but uh, since her father was dean of chemical engineering at the Royal University, they were called prisoners mm -hmm. in their own invasion. Mm -hmm. So she and two sisters were in prison for 
about two months, mm -hmm. and her father about three months. And then they had to leave Cuba right away because mm -hmm. they told their father, you stay, they're going to put him in prison. Mm -hmm. And the reason that the communists hated him was because he was a firm believer in democracy. Mm -hmm. And he found that in Cuba, it was not a political party, it was an ideological group mm -hmm. called Democracia Organica Cristiana. Mm -hmm. Christian organic democracy. Mm. And I remember being in college, I used to go to the uh, lectures or gatherings, or informal gatherings, uh, about the social uh, doctrine of the mm -hmm. church and everything related with social justice. So, this, I was going to their house to these chatlas or get togethers mm -hmm. before I even started dating Ellie. So mm -hmm. I remember her wow. growing up. Yeah. And uh, then we finally got married in 1964. Mm -hmm. And God bless us with five children wow. Ellie, Rosie, your mother, mm -hmm. uh, Manny. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bibi mm -hmm. and Patrick. Mm -hmm. So we really have been very blessed. And then you've stayed the rest of your life in the U.S. and now have been living in Miami for how many years? Since 1980. Wow. So we lived nine years in Virginia, mm -hmm. uh, six and a half years in Chicago, mm -hmm. and then in Miami since 1980. Wow. And so going back to your life in Cuba, and when do you think, when was your first time thinking about like right and wrong and what justice was as a kid? I would say as a kid, uh, I would say since uh, before entering high school, mm -hmm. I was already with that orientation and mainly because of the education with the Jesuits. And then once I was in a junior and senior year, mm -hmm. we were very involved mm -hmm. in social justice. And for instance, when I was in junior and senior high school, uh, a group of us volunteered to teach workers at night. And they were ma mainly uh, honest skilled work, mm -hmm. uh, carpenters, painters, mm -hmm. uh, bricklayers, and we taught them to pass the entrance examination uh, to the Berlin Vocational School. Mm -hmm. And there they study electricity, air conditioning, radio, television. Mm -hmm. And by the time they graduated, they were uh, wow. ready yeah. to have a very uh, productive life, mm -hmm. even though they came from families from very low income mm -hmm. and they were poor. Mm -hmm. So for us, it was very remunerating to help these guys. Mm -hmm. And uh, it really helped us. And then the a big thing that 
our trust on 1957 uh, with the idealism mm -hmm. of helping uh, not only the poor but the uneducated, mm -hmm. uh, we decided to do a project. Mm -hmm. And the project was to build a, a small clinic mm -hmm. in one of the poorest neighborhoods of uh, Miami. Uh, I, uh -huh. I, I remember it was called La Lisa, but the area where we built the, the clinic was so bad that they called it Korea. Oh, wow. And we used to go there sometimes after school or on weekends to physically build the clinic. Wow. I remember using the brick and mortar mm -hmm. wow. under the supervision of an architect. Mm -hmm from the Agrupación Católica Universitaria. And then once the clinic was completed, like in 1959, mm -hmm. doctors from the ACU, mm -hmm. the Agrupación were doing volunteer work as doctors in the clinic in the, one of the poorest neighborhoods. Mm, wow. So thanks to the ACU, which was a Jesuit, a Jesuit organization mm -hmm. that I've had a tremendous impact in my life, uh, I was really involved in uh, social justice. And what about, and when did you start thinking about human rights in general? I would say since I was at the beginning of high school, mm -hmm. what age is that? Like 14, 15? Yeah. yeah. And what got you thinking about it? What inspired you to start thinking about it? I would say the desert education, but not everybody at that age, got involved like that. Mm -hmm. Other people were more involved in sports. But for me, it was like a vocation. Mm -hmm. So what does human rights mean to you now? Well, I would say mainly justice. Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, I would say trying to live the the Gospels mm -hmm. and apply it to daily life mm. uh, and our relation with our peers and with people that we can help mm -hmm. and especially have an impact in society mm. and not only help others but give a good example teaching social justice which is taking care of each other mm -hmm. in a very, very positive way. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Um, and so what impact do you think your family had on your ideas of justice? I would say, remember I come from the generation of the 40s mm -hmm. and 50s. Mm -hmm. So I was born in 39. My father and mother were great people, but they were in a different environment mm -hmm. than my brother and I mm -hmm. that spent mm -hmm. 12 years with the Jesuits. Mm -hmm. So, thanks God, they enrolled us mm -hmm. in Malaya School, and they were hard workers, uh, very good parents, but I don't think they had that inquietude, mm -hmm. how would you say that? Uh, 
What's another word for it? Like the vocation of soldiers. They taught us about it, mm -hmm. but it was a different environment. Yeah. So, uh, uh, the fact that once I started high school and college in Cuba, it really helped me to put in practice mm. what I had learned in theory. Yeah. And so you talk about how the Jesuits have a very big impact. Your family, a little bit. But how did history, so you're talking about you're growing up in the 40s, this is a time where the Holocaust was happening in Europe and World War II, and then in the 50s, at the end of the 50s, we have the Cuban Revolution. So how did history impact your perception of human rights? Well, something very interesting. My father was a scientist. Mm -hmm. He was a research chemist. And he loved history mm -hmm. and astronomy. Mm -hmm. And every night, I remember he used to listen shortwave radio, mm -hmm. mainly the BBC of London. Mm -hmm. So I grew up uh, with the, and this is a correction. My father was very intellectual mm -hmm. and he loved history. So in a way, yes, I was educated in that environment. So I don't remember when I was little and President Roosevelt died, mm -hmm. uh, I think 1945, mm -hmm. so I was six years old. And I remember perfectly when we were listening to the radio, the BBC in London, and they announced that President Roosevelt had died. Mm -hmm. So yeah, thanks to my father and mother, I kept up. Mm -hmm. what was going in the world. And so relating to what was going on in the world and human rights, did you, when you were younger, did you connect the two of looking at what was going on and putting it in the perspective of human rights or had that not been as much? I, I would say yes, and I'll give you an example. Uh, when I was like in second year high school, I had that uh, I said the word inquietude again, mm -hmm. which means like a, a desire, mm -hmm. a wish mm -hmm. to connect with the workers. Mm -hmm. And I remember that one day I wanted to spend a whole day with the man in charge of the farm. Mm -hmm. So I asked him, Antonio, Whenever you're ready, I want to wake up. At the time you wake up at five in the morning, go and milk the cows, mm -hmm. and spend a whole day with Antonio, who was a campesino, mm -hmm. a farmer. Mm -hmm. And uh, for me, it was an eye opener mm. to live a whole day like they live. Mm. And, uh, and had a, that had a big impact. Wow. And so that's beautiful. And so when was the first time or when were some of the early times in your life that you remember witnessing an injustice, something that you felt was someone's rights were being violated? I would say in Cuba, mm -hmm. uh, the way 
that there was uh, racism mm -hmm. regarding the black people and the poor people. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, and here in America, they think of Cuba as a fun place. Mm. And the tourists going to Havana every weekend mm -hmm. to spend it in the nightclubs, mm -hmm. have fun. Mm -hmm. And that's the way they remember Cuba. And actually, it wasn't Cuba, it was only Havana. Mm. So there was politically, uh, since the early 40s, a lot of lack of political stability. Mm -hmm. So there were many injustices. Mm -hmm. And I remember during the dictatorship of Batista, the one that overthrew uh, President Carlos Pérez Ocarras, who was the last president elected democratically, in 1948, mm. and in 1952, Batista was a military a general. He overthrew the democratic government. Mm. So I remember about the injustices that going through the central road from Havana to a farm, you could see very nice houses that Batista's government have built next to the road. Mm -hmm. So people would say, oh, he cared for the poor. Mm -hmm. And there were nice uh, little houses made of brick. Mm -hmm. And uh, but that was publicity. Mm -hmm. Because behind that, there were very poor people mm -hmm. living in very bad human conditions. Mm -hmm. So here was a government bragging mm -hmm. that they took care of the poor and the uneducated. But it was just political propaganda. Wow. And then the environment that there was in Cuba during the Batista regime, which was a very bad dictatorship, right wing, mm -hmm. uh, sociologically caused that Fidel Castro started a revolution with communist ideas that then he implemented in Cuba mm -hmm. uh, as of. December 31st, 1958. So he started the communist government in January 1, 59. And he insisted that he wasn't a communist. He used to say the revolution is as green as the palm trees mm. instead of red. Like mm, communism. Interesting. But he was brainwashing the people. Mm. And eventually he said, I have been a communist, I am a communist, mm. and I would keep being a communist mm. for the rest of my life. And he died at age 90. Wow. And what were some of the injustices you witnessed under Fidel Castro's regime? Uh, lack of human rights. Uh, it was a very leftist communist revolution. Uh, only the people that were fanatic of Fidel Castro had a good life. Mm. And anybody that didn't agree, agree with him and the environment started growing up against mm. the Castro regime, uh, then you were considered like an enemy. 
mm. of the revolution. Mm. So there was a tremendous brainwash that if you were not with him, you were against him. Mm. Even if you were not against, mm. just you were not with. Mm. So that created a disbalance mm. in society. Mm. And did you ever feel like your human rights were violated? Yes. yes. Uh, I got involved with the Christian Democratic Party mm -hmm. when things started going bad. Uh, so it was really not a party. It was a Movimiento Democrata Cristiano, Christian Democracy, which I was inspired by Ellis' father, Manuel Suárez Carreño, the dean of the university. So, since I was very involved in this group that was an ideological group, uh, I feel that I was being, uh, what would be the, the word, uh, seen as against Castro and against human rights that he protected. He said that he was protecting. Mm. But since he was a, a leftist dictatorship, he bragged about that he was inspiring human rights. But really, no. Everybody that was not with him was considered against him. Mm -hmm. So we all suffered the consequences. Mm. And so, um, I know there's a story about your house being searched. Do you think that that was a, what, where do you think that fits into human rights? Yes. Uh, when I realized, and this is like a parenthesis, mm. when I realized that the democracy movement wasn't working because fear was getting more and more communist, mm -hmm. and there was no chance for democracy to prevail. Mm -hmm. Then I started working uh, with a group of students that had a group called Directorio Revolucionario Estudiantil. The reason for the word revolucionario was that the environment of idealistic college students was that the so-called revolution that Castro promoted was stolen. Mm. Like he had promised to restore democracy mm. after the Batista dictatorship to have free elections that the last elections were in 48. Mm. And here in 59, he was promising free elections, so people love it. Mm. So the whole reason at the beginning, I would say 85% of the population like Fidel because mm. uh, between democracy, free elections, uh, and no regulation of the media, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, Especially, he was lying about him doing such a thing. It was mm -hmm. all the country. Mm. And when he, quote, won the revolution, he stole the revolution. Mm. But 
as they were going toward Havana from the Oriente, the Eastern province where he started the revolution in the mountains, uh, as they were advancing toward Havana, later on, I find out they were killing a soldier from the Batista regime who were poor people, peasants mm -hmm. that were in the army and they were being shot in firing squads. Mm. So before he arrived to Havana, like uh, triumphalism, mm -hmm. uh, they were already violating human rights. So they were saying that they were pro-human human rights, but they were even killing people mm. that didn't agree with them. Mm. So back to your question, uh, after I realized that the democratic process wasn't ready to be implemented at that time, and I tried to, mm -hmm. uh, then I started helping this group that became an underground organization mm -hmm. to try to overthrow uh, the Castro uh, regime. Then this student group was like a satellite of a bigger group called Movimiento de Recuperación Revolucionaria, mm. the movement to recover mm. the revolution. Mm. So since the revolution promised so many bracings, mm -hmm. they were treasoners. Mm. They treasoned the revolution. Mm. So then from that group, uh, it was decided uh, by the underground in connection with the U.S. government to form training camps in Guatemala, Nicaragua, and another country in Central America to train many students and young people uh, and the CIA supervised those training camps to prepare an invasion mm -hmm. to rescue mm -hmm. democracy. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, due to many international political pressures, the invasion fell. Mm -hmm. But uh, there were, when well, we left Cuba in 1960, my partners and I, uh, there was such an environment that the Castro regime was going to collapse mm. that I remember when I left on November 14, 1960, that we felt we'll be back mm. in three to six months mm. because of the invasion. And we had the mentality that since the U.S. was only 90 miles from Cuba, mm. they would not allow a communist country 90 miles from Kiwis. Mm. And like I said, due to international pressures, uh, the uh, invasion fell. Mm. And then there was more repression. Mm. So from 1961 on, then came the missile crisis. Mm. And we were, the war was close to World War III. Mm. So it was that bad. Mm. But everything started with the degradation of human rights. Mm. 
And so you, you talked about human rights in Cuba being violated and your own wife was put in prison at the age of, how old was she? 17. 17, she was put in prison. How did that shape your idea of human rights in Cuba? That there was a minority of intellectuals mm -hmm. and mainly Catholic intellectuals that they wanted to correct the situation mm -hmm. in Cuba and especially the inequalities. Mm -hmm. There were tremendous inequalities between Havana, which people considered the entire Cuba was like mm -hmm. that, and all the injustices mm -hmm. and lack of balance sociologically and politically and economically in the rest of Cuba. Mm -hmm. So people thought Cuba was the same as Havana, and it wasn't. Mm. Havana was like a separate territory mm. that gave impression to the world that it was a, a great country when the rest of the country was having injustices. Mm. Wow. And so then later on when you were helping support the CIA for the Bay of Pigs, how did your concept of human rights change of looking at the U.S. when you saw the way you worked, the way the CIA worked? Well, I would say they were acting also as dictators. Mm. Uh, one of the biggest mistakes that are all the different groups that were trying to overthrow Castro's government all of them were under the umbrella of what was called Frente Revolucionario Democrático. And I became the delegate of the student group mm -hmm. to that uh, organization. And we used to meet every week or every 10 days with the person that had been chosen by all organizations to become the provisional president of Cuba, uh, assuming that the invasion was going to, to win. Uh, his name was Dr. Miro Cardona. He was a very respected judge mm -hmm. and professor of uh, law professor at the university. So he was supposed to become the provisional president of Cuba. So uh, we rely a lot on the CIA. We were taking orders from him, mm. for them. And in a way, looking backwards, we were almost like slaves or victims mm. of the CIA. Mm. And whatever they say, we had to comply. Mm. And then uh, I remember the day the invasion fell, they all cut off communications with the different groups. Mm. You would call by telephone to the uh, specific person from the CIA that was your connection. The telephones were unanswered mm. for about five days to a week. So all of a sudden, we were so dependent on them and then they drop us. Mm. 
So that was a big injustice. Yeah. But at the same time was the fault of the Cubans that became so dependent mm. on the CIA. And then to make things worse, the different groups in Miami that had underground people in Cuba, the CIA divided us. Mm. So uh, each group had a different contact from the CIA. And uh, I would say it was a lack of respect mm. to the Cubans, especially young Cubans mm. that were sacrificing themselves and their families going to Central America to be trained as soldiers. And they were too young. There was an injustice yeah. uh, But it's interesting, they divided us, mm. the groups in Miami. So each one had a CIA contact, and sometimes they were giving us contradictory instructions. Mm. So they were dividing us. Mm. At the same time, we're depending on them. Mm. And even economically, they were uh, financing the the revolutionary scarcity. Mm. So they controlled the boats that were taking people from Miami to Cuba in the underground. Mm. And it was sad. Young people, 18, 20 years old, friends of mine that were, were taken in uh, small boats or uh, what we call lunches. Mm -hmm. Uh, and were taken to the underground. And uh, I felt that they were really making an injustice mm. with all these young people. Mm. And eventually I have been uh, uh, at one point the leaders of the student uh, group in Miami they said there are only two choices for the young men, either to go to Cuba to the underground or to go to the training camps. Mm. So I remember having gone to a trailer in front of the immigration uh, building in downtown Miami to register as a volunteer to go to the training camps. But with my personality, <laughs> I couldn't have been in an army and killing people. Mm -hmm. So that was against mm -hmm. my uh, my beliefs. Mm. So I, I couldn't mind shooting yeah. people even in a war. So fortunately, God permitted that they named me the coordinator of the group in Miami, while all the other people mm. either went to the underground or went to the training camps. Mm. So I was one of the few men that stayed in Miami, and we had a lot of uh, young ladies that were our friends helping mm. in the office of the uh, student group with propaganda and uh, maintaining an activism. Mm -hmm. And I remember that uh, I used to go two or three times a week to a radio station in Coral Gables, mm -hmm. which is a neighborhood 
in Miami, uh, very affluent. Mm -hmm. And we used to go to the radio station that signed off from the air at midnight. And then they let us uh, record mm -hmm. uh, speeches and uh, pro-democracy propaganda. And the CIA took those tapes to a small island east of Costa Rica uh, called Swam Island. Mm -hmm. So the CIA had uh, uh, radio uh, equipment and antennas Mm -hmm. transmitting to Cuba or what we had recorded in Miami and they may believe people in Cuba that we were talking from inside Cuba who mm -hmm. we were transmitting from Gloria Gables, Miami, Florida. Wow. So we were living in a very artificial environment mm -hmm. and looking backwards I feel that we, we became like slaves. Wow. Interesting. And so now flashing forward to the present day and the past four years under Trump, how do you think your ideas of human rights have changed? That we need more human rights. Mm -hmm. And let me backtrack a little. Yeah. When I was seven years old mm -hmm. in 1946, I made the first trip to the United States with my parents and my brother. And I remember we were on vacation to the mountains in North Carolina, then we visited Washington, New York. But I couldn't believe in 1946 the social injustices that were happening in the USA. Mm -hmm. And I remember as a seven-year-old boy, uh, if we stopped in an area to get gas and restaurant mm -hmm. and all that, I was so disappointed mm -hmm. with the life here in USA in 1946, especially racial injustices. Mm -hmm. So there was a rational for white men and black men, white women and black women, even the water coolers, mm -hmm. black and white. So when as tourists, we thought that America was the greatest, mm -hmm. America was already still suffering of slavery. Mm -hmm. And the generations of black people in the 40s and 50s, uh, their human rights were not recognized. Mm. So there was a lot of racism uh, also in the workplace mm -hmm. and in society. Mm -hmm. They were always put down. So I connected this with Trump mm -hmm. in the sense that <clears throat> Trump in a way reminds me of Fidel Castro mm. because he promised great things during the political campaign in 2015. Uh, once he became president, he started dividing the country. Mm -hmm. And the same thing, you either were pro-Trump 
or against Trump. Mm. And that really divided the nation. Mm. And then uh, areas like the, uh, not as much as Cuckoo Clan, but white supremacists, mm. they grew up under the protection of the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. And a lot of injustices start getting deeper and deeper. Mm -hmm. So on one hand, and that's the reason I said it reminds me of Fidel Castro. He promised a lot of good things during the campaign, mm -hmm. but during his four years as president, he divided the country, and we ended up with the quasi revolution mm -hmm. that happened at the Capitol on uh, February, January, January 6th. 6th, that it ended like a revolution in the US Capitol. Mm -hmm. And it caused the death of uh, five Americans, uh, I believe four of them policemen. And two of them committed suicide. Mm -hmm. So they were so frustrated mm -hmm. with what was happening. Yeah. So, unfortunately, like I said, Trump became a dictator. Mm -hmm. And that's against the Constitution and against the founding fathers mm -hmm. to have in the year 2020 a true dictator mm -hmm. against the principles that we learned from Lincoln mm -hmm. and the Founding Fathers. Mm -hmm. And do you think that, have you ever felt like your human rights in the U.S. were violated? You talked about it in Cuba, but do you, since leaving Cuba? My personally, no. Mm -hmm. uh, I was able to live a normal life and a family man, and uh, with uh, my work in executive positions. So I don't think that directly it affected me, but it affected the society mm -hmm. around me. Mm -hmm. So I was very conscious of, in a way, the violation of human rights that were happening during the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and what are the biggest issues of human rights around the world that you care about today that like take up space in your mind? Well, I would say injustices mm -hmm. uh, and the dictatorships around the world, like in North Korea, mm -hmm. the Soviet Union, and all the countries that are under repression in Eastern Europe, uh, all that is affecting the environment, the whole world. Mm -hmm. So there are so many injustices, even toward South America, mm -hmm. Central America. Uh, so right now the world is going through, uh, in a way, a turmoil. Mm -hmm. Uh, there were a lot of idealistic people that are trying to correct the situation. But uh, there is a, a lack of 
social and moral principles worldwide. And hopefully, uh, there's a new trend now with the Biden administration that social justice will start prevailing again in the USA. And what do you think the role of faith can be in combating human rights abuses worldwide? Well, faith is very important because without faith, you become an unbeliever. Mm -hmm. And if you become an unbeliever, then you don't trust other people, you don't trust the government, and you cannot lose hope mm -hmm. for the future. Mm -hmm. So faith helps you to have hope. Mm -hmm. And I would say all religions, mm -hmm. the Jewish people, the uh, Episcopalians, I don't like the word Protestant, mm -hmm. uh, the Lutherans, they all have the same ideals. Mm -hmm. So if we work together, at least within the United States, we will create a better environment or respect to all generations, the young people, the students, the career people, the elderly, and mainly to eliminate the racial injustices. Mm -hmm. Have you ever read the Universal Declaration of Human Rights? Yes. When did you read it? I would say when I was in college in Atlanta, uh, I was a senior at the University of Cuba, but once you transfer mm -hmm. to the U.S., you lose a lot of credits. Mm -hmm. So I remember I had to take, even though I was like a, considered like a junior, mm -hmm. even though I was a senior at Cuba, then I had to take some subjects from mm -hmm. sophomore year mm -hmm. and perhaps freshman mm -hmm. that were required mm -hmm. subjects that were not part of the curriculum of junior and mm -hmm. senior. So the most interesting that had an impact on me was American history. Mm. And I really was inspired by the American history. Mm. That's wonderful. Are there, did I forget to add, ask you any other important questions or is there anything else you want to add about your ideas of human rights? Well, I would say we have to be conscious that human rights are for everybody. Mm -hmm. uh, it's part of what God wanted for all human beings. Mm -hmm. So we cannot promote human rights for certain groups and not for other groups. We have to be united in faith and in hope. That was beautiful. Thank you so much. Ay, que cute. Ay, you're so wonderful. Okay.